I love singing that doxology. In my previous church, we would sing the Gloria Patri on um, communion Sundays. Uh, Wonderful gifts of music and praise and lyrics for our God. Let's open our Bibles. Let's hear God speak to us today in these next few moments. When we read God's word, God is speaking. As the word is preached, God is speaking. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're primarily going to look at verse 9. Verse 9. And uh, hunker down on that, as we mentioned last week. As you're finding your place in your Bible, a special welcome to those who may be joining us on the live stream or later on watching the sermon video. May God bless you. Uh, We'd long to have you with us so that you could sing with us and pray with us, as well as attend to God's word. If you underline in your Bibles, this certainly is a verse to underline. From God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that that you by his poverty might become rich. For your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. May God bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his word. Amen. Amen. Life is about making choices. Sometimes as we get older, the choices get a little easier, but not always. There are many new choices ahead as we age. Life is about making choices, making exchanges, using our resources to get other resources we need, finding our way in life, planning for today and for the future. But the trouble is our resources are finite, our knowledge is limited, and our abilities are finite. And there's some things we cannot do. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the sinner remove his sin? The Bible tells us answers to those questions and points us to the one resource, the only resource that can provide for the cleansing of our soiled soul and the securing of our salvation in heaven above. Only one way through the Lord Jesus Christ and on this communion Sunday we camp on this verse because it displays the great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ it explains the exchange that was made and it uses those economic terms we'll talk about that but it's a wonderful display of our great savior and his gift Thinking about gifts took me back to one of the most famous short stories ever written. Uh, there was an author who went by his first by a first initial and a name, O. Period Henry. How many people have heard of O. Henry? That's his pen name, not his real name. His real name was William Sidney Porter. Learned that on the internet last night. But O. Henry has a very famous short story. He has lots of good short stories. I recommend them to you. And I'm wondering about giving a spoiler alert. But his most famous short story is called 
by a, a, a Bible title. It's called The Gift of the Magi. Very provocative because it's not about the wise men. It's not about Bethlehem. It's just about a modern day couple. The short story written in 1906. It's about a husband and a wife, Jim and Della. And they were getting ready to buy presents for each other. But they had very little money. You know, they just had pennies that had been saved. And maybe a dollar bill or two. They were dirt poor, as we might say. The two did each have a special possession that they prized above all others. Jim, the husband, had a gold watch that had been handed down through generations and was now his. And his wife, Della, was famous for her beauty and her long, thick hair. And it said her hair almost reached to her knees. We can picture that. That's a lot of hair. But how would Della raise money to buy a Christmas present for Jim? The pennies didn't really add up. And she'd really desired to get him a chain for his watch. Spoiler alert coming up. It doesn't change the effect of the story. I still recommend you read it. What does Della do? She goes to a store and offers to sell her hair. She says, cut my hair and will you pay me for it? And... uh, Uh, somebody paid her a lot of money, more than she had seen in years. And she was thrilled. So she's able to take the money and buy a platinum fob chain for Jim's watch. She goes home and then she gets her curling iron out and tries to make her hair uh, as best as possible. She cries, she kind of prays, Lord, uh, make sure Jim doesn't hate me. Jim comes in the door and sees her and he's stunned. And... uh, realizes what she's done and she hands him the watch fob and and then he hands her his present his present to her some beautiful tortoise shell combs for her long hair how could he afford those i sold my gold watch each with their limited resources doing something out of love for the other and and now they couldn't enjoy those gifts what irony And as O. Henry tells us at the end, there was wisdom here. There was love here in its innocence. It's something to behold. There are limited exchanges that we can make. And my friends, if you don't know this now, there's nothing you can offer to God to cleanse your own soul. There's nothing you can do. You You can try to live a perfect life from today onward. But what about yesterday's sin? You don't have the resources to undo the sins of your youth or the sins of your future. We need something outside of us. We need someone greater than us to save us. That's the truth of the Bible. And here in this single stellar verse, we see the Savior, Jesus Christ, who does not merely trade his, he doesn't trade his divinity for his humanity. He has both. But he doesn't simply make some exchange with us as a fellow human being. This is God the Son, the divine one who has come to shed his blood for many. And then to take up his life again. Jesus Christ, the unique God-man, does for us what we could never do for ourselves. We're going to linger over this powerful verse and we'll learn uh, some of its doctrine 
and we'll see our great Savior all the more clearly, I pray. I want to first start with something, and it sounds very doctrinal, so we'll just own it. We want to look here and see from the phrase, he was rich, that Jesus Christ existed before Bethlehem. We're going to talk about his divine pre-existence. That's kind of an unusual expression. We, we don't really have other um, things to talk about in terms of their pre-existence. You can know someone from childhood, but you don't know them before they're born. Jesus Christ existed before Bethlehem. Boys and girls, I hope you know that. That's what the Bible teaches. This phrase says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. It's referring to a time when he was rich and then a time that he became poor. One at a time will take them. He was rich. That wasn't when he was on the earth. He was born into poverty. He lived uh, middle class or lower in the village of Nazareth. Jesus never accumulated wealth. The Greek expression here for was rich is a present participle, meaning that in the past it was the ongoing status and condition. That was the reality for a long time. Tied to his preexistence, his riches. It's telling us Jesus Christ is God from all eternity past. He's possessing all the glories and perfections of the divine nature. Kent Hughes, we we read earlier, introduced the service by reading from Psalm 147 and talked about God and his relationship with the stars he had made. He calls them all by names. Kent Hughes reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ before Bethlehem could take and hold a white hot star in the palm of his hand because he was God. And the Bible tells us that God holds the stars in his hand. He speaks and things come into being. We know that Jesus as God before Bethlehem was the object of angelic worship. Angels, those created servants, supernatural beings, the different existence. They're creatures, but they're supernatural. Many of them exist simply to worship God in his presence. We're told that the seraphim covered their face. They they covered their feet in the presence of the Holy One. Jesus received angelic worship before he was born in Bethlehem and greeted by some shepherds. There's a marvelous sermon on this very concept by William Cunningham about 100 years ago. William Cunningham is more famous for his theology as a great professor of historic theology and watching it develop and grow. But he had a time in the ministry, a few years when he was preaching, his sermons are superb. He describes the richness of Christ with these words. Before he was born, he was God over all, blessed forever, existing in the possession of all the glories and perfection of the divine nature from eternity 
rich in all the sources of happiness which infinite moral excellence could furnish, which unlimited power and dominion could bestow. He was the creator and proprietor of all things. His was the earth and the fullness thereof. Jesus was rich. We often forget that. We have our Sunday school lessons used to be the flannel graph and somebody would move characters around and tell the story of Jesus. Before he ever walked this earth, he was rich. He was God. If you have a pencil or pen and I left you just a tiny bit of space on the outline, we're going to look at a few more scriptural proofs so that you know that this isn't just an extrapolation from verse 9 when it says he was rich. The Bible teaches that Christ was pre-existence. This is so important. Today in our Sunday, and let's turn to John chapter 1 while I continue. John chapter 1. Today in Sunday school, we're going to begin learning about the Quran and Islam and a character named Muhammad. Boy, the more we learn of him, the more questions are raised. The more you learn of Christ, you see that the Bible presents him as God from eternity past. I have seven evidences from the New Testament. Here's the first and foremost place you need to know is John's prologue. That is the introduction to his gospel, John chapter 1. And in those words, you see that Jesus is presented as existing before Bethlehem. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Do we get the message? And then down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's when he became poor. And we'll explain the poverty in just a minute. He was rich because he was God. So John's prologue begins in eternity past, before anything was created. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's John's theme. And if we're also thinking of John, you might jot down two other verses that are absolutely clear as to what they teach about Christ's preexistence. John 8, 58. Excellent verse that you might use with Uh, Jehovah Witnesses or others who don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? Jesus claims to be Jehovah, the living one, long before Abraham. Jesus is no mere Jewish man. He's God, Jehovah. And his audience understood that because they thought he was blaspheming. They didn't consider the truth of the statement. They took up stones to to stone him. Further, the witness of John's gospel continues on into John 17. I'll just mention verse 5. John 17, you know that address. Jesus is praying. It's his high priestly prayer. He's praying and asking Uh, for God to to glorify the Son. He says this in the middle of that prayer, at the beginning of the prayer, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created, before the world existed. Hello, Jesus knows those days. He knows those realities. So the Gospel of John 
Its prologue and additional verses make clear that Jesus existed as God before Bethlehem. That's mind-boggling. But it's true. The next few examples uh, I can illustrate by turning to the Gospel of Mark. So turn to Mark chapter 1. Or listen and follow through or uh, replay the sermon later on if you want the references. The next few New Testament evidences uh, are broad in general, but I can illustrate them in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' pre-existence is defended when the Bible calls him Lord so frequently. They're not just calling him rabbi, they're calling him Lord as in the Lord. And in Mark chapter 1 verse 3, we see that in that Isaiah passage that is quoted. Isaiah is quoted to introduce John the Baptist and Jesus. And it says, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's the Baptist, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Isaiah there meant Jehovah. Now Mark is quoting it to talk about John the Baptist and Jesus is the Lord. So whenever he's called Lord in the New Testament, it's a connection to the Old Testament name and title of God. Another evidence is from Mark chapter 1 verse 11. On three occasions, the Lord spoke from heaven to say, this is my beloved son. And at the baptism of Jesus described in Mark 1 verse 11, it says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He doesn't say Jesus became a son. You are my son. Further, turn to Mark chapter 1 verse 15. This is a passage that... uh, Many of us know because it describes and summarizes the whole ministry of Jesus in such a simple way. That's Mark's style, isn't it? John 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus presents himself as the kingdom bringer. Not just in this verse, but throughout the New Testament. What would that make Jesus? If he says at his arrival, at his public ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand because the son of the king, the king, the Christ is present. Those are pre-existent realities. Mark chapter 2 verse 10 illustrates another evidence of the whole New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus had a favorite term to refer to himself. And hopefully you know it. He called himself the son of man. Kind of cryptic. Until you realize he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7. It's a name for a divine eternal being. And Jesus takes that upon himself. And we see it, for example, in Mark 2 verse 10. At this this healing episode. He's finding out that people don't think he can... Forgive sins or heal this person. So in verse 10, Jesus speaks. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus refers to himself using the title from Daniel chapter 7. Because he is the eternal one. A sixth evidence from the New Testament, the teaching of the parables. In many of the parables, it presents Jesus as 
the, the owner of the world, the creator, the boss. One example would be the parable of the tenants. You see it, for instance, in Mark 12. What is the parable of the tenants? Well, there are some renters or some tenants on the property in the parable, and they're pretty mean, and they want to keep it for themselves. So when the owner sends his servant, they beat him up. When he sends another servant, they kill him. So finally, the son of the owner comes. Jesus is teaching about himself as being the heir of all things, the owner of the vineyard, the owner of the earth. So the teachings of Jesus own his pre-existence. And then I think the coup de grace in the New Testament teaching about the pre-existence of Jesus. Some people think the New Testament is pretty silent on the matter. It's not. And you probably thought of these already. The opening words to the letter to the Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 begins with these verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Verse 3, referring to Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it continues. The Bible sees that Jesus is Lord, not just in terms of conquering as a smart rabbi. He is divine. He existed before Bethlehem. He took on humanity when he was born by the virgin and dwelt among us. What is all this about? This is all about that phrase, he was rich. Jesus wasn't a rabbi that got caught up in things and got in over his head and we can only try to love other people like Jesus loved. No, he is God come among us. Emmanuel. The divine preexistence of Jesus Christ is an absolutely vital doctrine for us to believe because if he were not the son of God, he could not save us. Let's look at that next phrase in our text from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. There's a plot change right there. Something, one one of scholars said, something palpable has happened. Something significant happened at that moment. What, What does this possibly mean? He became poor. Well, since we're also throwing out some Greek, I want to point out to you that here the the Greek tense of that, he became poor, is in this tense. It's called the aorist tense, and it refers to something that is a finite, completed action. He became poor, as it were, for just a season, is how it's described in Paul's inspired letter. It's not permanent. There was that time. When the Son of God changed, he also became human, dwelt among us. And that's what this being poor primarily means. 
If we have 2 Corinthians still open, take a look at chapter 5, verse 21. It talks about this exchange without the economic metaphors, but rather straight up, the spiritual exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul is summarizing how God brings about our reconciliation. And the summary statement is this. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. There's a spiritual transaction accomplished by our Savior, and it requires him to take on our sin, to become the sin bearer, and to shed his blood. But you can't do that if you're simply the the heavenly being without body and blood. He became a man, fully God, fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ. William Cunningham describes that exchange, becoming poor with great eloquence. Cunningham says he appeared simply as a man in the lower class of those intelligent creatures whom he himself created. He once had been placed far beyond the reach of sorrow or suffering. Now he was liable to misery and death, and he did suffer and die. Once the highest of created beings could not approach him without the profoundest admiration and reverence, afterward, the lowest of menials and the most abject slave might and did spit upon him and buffet him. His riches had vanished away, and to the eye of man at least, says Cunningham, he appeared in that state of meanness and suffering and contempt with which poverty is commonly associated. He had descended from a height of riches which no created being can fully comprehend, to a depth of poverty, humiliation, and suffering, such as not been equaled in the history of sinful men. He became poor. And this, we say, is at the incarnation, when he left the glories of heaven and entered this world when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Supernaturally, now he was poor. But does this also mean he was literally poor? Economically poor? Yes. Yes, it does. And we ought to understand that as wealthy citizens of the 21st century. If you live in America, you're wealthy. Just a quick reminder. I know sometimes it's hard to make ends meet. But Jesus was truly poor. Matthew chapter 8 verse 20. As Jesus was talking about the cost of following him. He was warning them. To follow me. To follow this savior. To be a Christian might cost you. Because look at your leader. Look at your savior. Jesus said to him. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the son of man is nowhere to lay his head. The cost of following Jesus appears to have economic components. Not requirements, but components. 
Dr. R.V.G. Tasker said, He, Jesus, was to die without a single possession. Even the clothes he wore were stripped off him by the soldiers responsible for his execution. Here was poverty indeed. And all for our sins. There's a parallel passage here and we only need to go to one passage to understand this a little further. It's in Philippians chapter 2. Flip to Philippians chapter 2. That great Christological hymn. Verses 6 and 7. We'll limit ourselves to verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 2. Which describe this, again, not in economic terms, rich and poor, but very straight up supernatural terms. This great exchange. He was rich, he became poor. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, verse 6 of chapter 2. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became poor. He became human entered into our finiteness. That's poverty if you're infinite God. I don't know how God is enfleshed in the womb of Mary and then born and raised and lived and breathed and and did things on this planet, had blood to shed. I don't know how God and man were in Christ, but they were. Remember our Christmas hymn, I think it was Charles Wesley's at Hark the Herald Angels. Uh, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. He lays something aside. He does this willingly. He became poor. He didn't just change from his robes of glory into his work clothes. Oh, I'll get this fixed. I'll be right back. He knew pain and suffering, abuse and death. As this passage in Philippians tells us. I have to include at this point a clarifying footnote. If this is a doctrinal sermon, if you didn't know that's what you're getting. We have a doctrinal sermon today on this text. Christology is what we're talking about. And the fact that God became man and Jesus Christ, both man and God, exchanged what he had to exchange to bring about our enrichment, our salvation. The footnote here, as we've looked at Philippians 2, has to do with a term. It says here, as Paul's writing, and it's clear to most of us when we read it, uh, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That's talking about the incarnation. The word became flesh. But that word empty... In Greek, keno, and uh, kenosis is the act of emptying or pouring out. Some people, some German theologians 150 years ago made hay with that and went astray. And it filtered into uh, even some popular Protestant theologians in the early 1900s. And it's still out there. There's an incipient uh, error 
in thinking about Jesus. And I hope it hasn't come your way. This kenosis doctrine, this kenosis theory. Yes, the word keno is used here to empty or to pour out. But it's being used metaphorically. Meaning he gave up status and privilege. That which would normally be contained like precious water or jewels. To pour them out was a letting go of certain things, not grasping and holding on to status and privilege. We're told that this term was misunderstood. This self-emptying does not mean he relinquished his divine attributes or that he was no longer God. You see where that could go astray. He emptied himself. He, he, he hung his divinity on a coat hook in heaven and said, I may be back. No. The one who came and the one who goes to the cross is the Son of God. He was in his full humanity. The miracles he performed were with the help of the Holy Spirit who had come upon him. His walking on the water as a man was with the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't just say, oh, well, he was God. He could always walk in the water. Yes, he could. But the spirit in cooperation with him in his incarnation while he was poor and had laid aside those privileges, not laid aside his divinity. He wasn't grasping at that, but rather let the spirit of God put him forward as the second Adam, the perfect Adam, the Savior, the Christ. You can go astray with the kenosis doctrine, as Dr. Tasker points out. He did not lay aside his divinity. There is no doctrine of kenosis, as the German theologians and others have taught. You see where they go with that. They say the whole thing about Jesus is is self-denial. And that becomes the way that we save ourselves, by likewise denying self and giving for others. And it shoots off in all sorts of other directions. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as the headmaster of the Highland Theological School, Donald McLeod, said, this means, God and man, this means that whenever we look at the life of Christ, when we read something in the scriptures that Jesus did or said, and we ask, who did this? Who suffers this? Who said this? The answer is always, the Son of God did this. We can never say, The divine nature did this, or the human nature did that. We must always say, he did that. He, the Son of God. That's the best way to understand Jesus. Fully God, fully man, the Son of God. He became poor. There's more to the story than just his incarnation. There's the purpose of it all. Back to our text, 2 Corinthians 2, 8 and verse 9. Uh, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's talk about the enriching salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. Those terms, so that... Or for your sake. What do they tell us? They tell us that Christ did this with purpose. 
God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. The son so loved his people that he willingly said, I will go. He said, not my will, but thine will. Jesus voluntarily takes up the mantle of Savior. He did not come reluctantly, but according to plan. And he came not because we were worthy. William Cunningham again says, we had no claim whatever on Christ's love. We were unworthy of any token of his regard. We had much about us to repel and disgust him. And yet Christ loved us and manifest his grace. He does this by mercy, love, and grace for us. When the Bible talks about our Savior, whether it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it talks about God's grace at work so that we might be saved. That's the underpinning of this whole verse. How did Paul start this verse that we're looking at today? He says to the Corinthians to whom he writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have already experienced the results of this transaction. The one who became rich and poor, you know him. And you've been changed by what he did. They had been converted. They had been born again. And that's all captured in that phrase, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's a reference. That's a, a, a term for the whole of salvation. We're saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace focuses on what God has done for us in his son that we could never do for ourselves. Some would say that this verse is a definition of grace. He who was rich became poor to to enrich us who, by implication, were poor and impoverished and could not enrich ourselves. It's all of grace. And now, we are rich. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You're rich. (laughs) We know what that means in modern American terms. Oh, you got an inheritance, or... Uh, you, you won this or you got a bonus and you're rich now. And, and we all have our number that, that we think, okay, that's rich when you talk about a certain number. When we were kids, you know, a millionaire was a rare thing. I guess America's filled with a million millionaires. I don't know what the number is. And don't get me started on inflation. Spiritually, we're rich. How are we rich? God has given you his son. God has made you joint heirs with Jesus. And although you don't yet, you haven't gotten the keys to the mansion, you haven't moved in yet. And by the way, you don't need to bring any of your stuff. It's all prepared. Oh, who's the builder up there? Jesus is preparing the mansion. And your name is on the door. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. We're rich. 
And just for the earnest money, the down payment, God puts his spirit within us. We have the Holy Spirit within us that was with Christ. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. My spirit will be with you. The same spirit that enabled him to live the sinless life while he performed his saving mission now dwells with us, wrestles with us. Come on, Dave, fight that temptation. Come on, Dave, pursue holiness. Remember God's word. Get up and give it another try. The comforter, the counselor, the convictor, the teacher. We are rich. A private tutor. A personal guide. The Spirit of God. We could continue all morning how we are rich. And the door of heaven is still wide open. As Paul wrote. I think it was to the Romans. Will not he who has given us his own son with him give us all things? Or as Peter said, we've been given everything necessary for life and godliness. You're rich. And it's because of Christ who was rich, who became poor. Jesus, the son of God who took on human flesh and accomplished our salvation. And by his grace gives it to us. That's what this verse says. And in the context here, Paul makes a passing reference. He purposely wanted to end with that fact that they were rich because he was in the process of asking the Corinthians to share in the collection for the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. He wanted some money from them and and was reminding them they had all they need. Participate in this collection. He goes on, and we'll talk about that in the week ahead, uh, uh, the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9. He talks a little bit about money, giving, and all those proportional lessons. But this verse, he pauses to remind Christians then and now how rich we are. The exchange that has given us what we could never have imagined or earned. Or deserved. Let me give you some closing exhortations and then we'll have our communion service. First, our response ought to be to worship and serve Jesus as the divine Son of God. Like the Apostle Thomas, whose eyes were finally open and he would never doubt again. We need to cry out, my Lord and my God. When we think of Jesus, we need to see him as my God. Not just as my buddy, my rescue hero, but my God. Don't leave Jesus on a Sunday school flannel graph or in a storybook. He is Lord. He's alive today. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. Awaiting his return. And when he returns, it will not be to be impoverished. He will come in his glory. Every eye will see him and every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Jehovah Lord God. It's true now and it will be true then. We need to worship him. So orient our life. I so loved 
the connection between Psalm 147 that we opened the service with and uh, the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah talking about the, the new covenant God would put in our hearts. And it, part of it was he would uh, cause us to fear him, to honor him, to know him as God. Not to treat him with contempt or familiarity, but to fear him. As a son admires, loves, and fears a godly father. Our call to worship ended with verse 11 of that psalm. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. It's part of the new covenant. Do we worship, fear, and adore our God? We need to do better with that. Secondly, our other response ought to be to rest in the comfort of such a great Savior. There needs to be a palpable, real rest element in our daily walk. If we're walking by faith in this Savior, with his power, with his kindness and condescending love and mercy, we need to take a deep breath and rest. We're in good hands. Too many Christians are panicky and and, and turning to pundits. How do I figure this out? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Apart from resting in the sovereignty of this Savior. This makes all the difference. Man, you get that creepy pain and you think, well, could this be a heart attack? And your life flashes before your eyes. Know that you have a Savior and a Shepherd who loved you and gave his life for yours. And you are his. Your life is precious to him. You need not fear whatever this world brings. If armies should surround our country and be on our border. Or the local officials come knocking to take your Bible and to shut you up. Rest in this Savior, for he is Lord as well as Savior. He turned the other cheek. He allowed himself to be crucified for this greater purpose of conquering. And when he returns, he will set all things right. Entrust yourself to him. Rest in the comfort of this Savior. What he has done cannot be undone. Finally, in our text, it said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I trust you do. If you don't know this Savior, if you don't know this grace, that's job one today. Before he returns and you're caught on the wrong side of Jesus. But if you already know, make known the grace of Jesus. Paul's writing to them, and he's going to go on and ask them for money for other Christians to be cared for. But isn't it a logical consequence? If you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been enriched, and you see others in your neighborhood, others in your family, struggling to piece it together, to find purpose, to get out from under their guilt, tell them about the grace of God. I know a few people that just really focus on getting more money. Those riches can fade, spoil, or be stolen. 
There are riches that surpass that, my friend. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where's your heart? Tell others who are groping and wondering about this grace. There are pundits who will try to tell them books. Uh, Today you'll probably hear news. The Super Bowl pundits will say, okay, in order for this team to win, this is what they have to do. In order for this team to win, this is what they have to do. They won't both win. And I don't have to be a pundit to tell you what God's word says. Your only hope of heaven, your only hope of being right with God, is the saving work of Christ. Apart from your merit, apart from your abilities, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's by grace. And if you know that, tell someone else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word from the Apostle Paul to Corinth to us about our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we love Jesus. Oh, what a great Savior we have. Oh, how glad we are to be redeemed and enriched spiritually in Christ. May others know this joy and provision and have an unshakable hope of heaven because of who you are. Make your gospel known, we pray, to our unsaved loved ones, our unsaved neighbors, and in this world. Father, get glory for yourself. In answering this prayer, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.